course you're going to become impatient. Well, perfect opportunity to practice patience. Of course you're going to doubt that you can. Well, perfect opportunity to practice self-confidence. Negative thoughts are going to arise. Well, perfect opportunity to clarify your mind, make it positive and confident and patient. We're always running our mind about so many things and we have responsibilities, we have duties, we have concerns, we have problems. But when you do find that place, time is suspended. There's no worry. Hey guys, how you doing? Hope you're having a good week so far. My name is Dr. Rongan Chatterjee and this is my podcast, Feel Better, Live More. Today's guest is someone who I have wanted to talk to for many, many years. I first came across him maybe 10 years ago or so and was fascinated by his approach to movement and in particular, natural movement. Erwin Lacour is the founder of MoveNet, a school of physical competency entirely based on natural movement. Now, since Erwin founded it back in 2008, It has quickly spread across the globe with certification courses, weekend retreats, and instructors all over the world. Many people regard Irwin as the godfather of natural movement in the modern age. And I would say that one of his core philosophies is that many of us, perhaps most of us, have become zoo humans. And as a result, we're suffering physically, mentally, and spiritually. You see, as humans, we are incredibly physically versatile. We can walk, run, sit, stand, jump, swim, dive, throw, catch, climb, and more. But how many of these movements do we typically do in daily or even weekly life? Why have we become so removed from these intrinsic functional capabilities? And does going to the gym or lifting a few weights at home really compensate enough? In his critically acclaimed book, The Practice of Natural Movement, Reclaim Power, Health and Freedom, Irwin outlines a simple structured process that can help all of us get back to who we are meant to be. Now, in our conversation, Irwin explains what exactly he means by the term functional fitness, being fit for life as opposed to looking fit or simply being fit for a specific sport. We talk about the benefits of moving in more natural ways, and these benefits are not just related to our physical health, they help our mental well-being as well. The knowledge that you could rise to the physical challenge of escaping if you or a loved one was in danger is actually a real source of inner confidence. Whether it's being able to run, swim, fight, or climb free, there really is a freedom in knowing that you are a capable human. And this is something that gyms and many modern training methods don't necessarily equip us to do. Now, over the past few years, Irwin has been researching, experimenting with, and developing his own breathwork practice that he has named Breathhold Work Meditation. Now, Irwin is someone who has always devoted himself to excellence and mastery, and he currently holds the US national record in something called static apnea with a seven minute and eight second breath hold. Now we launched his breath hold work meditation method online just over one year ago. I signed up and completed his four week online course. And I have to say, 
It was quite simply one of the very best courses I have ever done. And it really has had a transformative effect on me. So much so that what I learned from Air One has now found its way into my daily morning routine. We get into all the details during this conversation, but to give you a little teaser, at the start of his online course, during session one, I could only hold my breath for about one minute. Within four weeks, I increased that to four minutes and 20 seconds. And it was not because my body had adapted physiologically. It's because he taught me how to harness the power of my mind. As you are about to learn in this conversation, Irwin's technique is completely different from the Wim Hof method that you may already be familiar with. In that method, you hyperventilate at the start. In Irwin's method, there is no hyperventilation, which in his opinion means you can gain deeper insights, achieve greater calm, and more quickly access a state of inner peace. By learning how to quieten your mind and nervous system, when your body is asking you and literally begging you to breathe, you really do learn something quite profound about yourself, and it is a skill that absolutely transfers into other parts of your life. After all, if you can stay calm in this kind of environment, most things in life appear relatively easy afterwards in comparison. As a gift to my listeners, Irwin is offering you all a 30% off discount to both his online breath hold work meditation course and his live program that is taking place in September 2023. All you need to do is go to breathholdwork.com and use the code LIVEMORE30. And to be clear, I have no financial affiliation at all with Irwin's course. I myself have experienced incredible benefits on his course and would love others who are interested to experience the same. For me, this was a really enjoyable conversation with someone who I have followed for a long period of time. At its core, it's about inspiring you to rediscover who you really are, an innately capable and resilient human. I hope you enjoyed listening. Now, before we get started, a quick reminder that you can now listen to each episode of my podcast without any sponsor reads at all. It's only $3.99 per month, which I think is incredible value, under £1 per week. And it's a wonderful way to support the show and all the behind-the-scenes work that goes on to bringing you these powerful conversations. You can also get a 16% discount, 12 months for the price of 10 which works out at $39.99 if you pay upfront for the whole year. All you have to do is click on the link in the episode notes in your podcast app. And just to be really clear, this podcast will continue to be free of charge each week for everyone. This subscription option is simply for those of you who would like to support the show and listen to ad-free episodes. And now, my conversation with Iwan Lacour. I think many people regard you as the godfather of natural movement. You have previously said that looking fit and being fit are two different things. They are. And, and they're not contradictory. You could be fit and look fit you could also look fit without really being fit. So you have to understand or to look at fitness in a different way. 
than the conventional way, which is mostly looking at uh, the sort of face of the body, the way the body is shaped, uh, which is legitimate. It's good to have a good-looking body. It's a, it's a legit expectation. Uh, but the way I look at it um, is what is it that your body, a body, can do in the real world, in the real life? Not what it can do in the gym, um, and then what it looks like as a as an outcome, as if that outcome was the only thing that really matters. Which is, again, it's it's a legit to want a good looking body, but at the same time, it's limiting um, what we have a body for. Originally, is to be able to move in nature. In, in ways that are uh, adaptable to the, to the environment, environment that's sometimes, that's often changing and sometimes unpredictable, to be able to operate our body in effective ways in the real world. So an example of that would be firefighters. They need a body mm -hmm. that's functional so that they can save lives, literally. The size of the muscles does not matter, the shape of the body does not matter. Are they going to be able to climb up the stairs or the ladder fast? Are they able to be able to sprint, to lift or carry or drag a body, uh, to save a life, to, to jump over an obstacle? Those are real life movements. And those are natural movements. That they, All the movements they do are natural movements. Yeah. The skills, jumping, running, lifting, carrying, etc. So for someone who heard that, Irwan, and was thinking, okay, I understand that for mm. a firefighter. Yes. I get it. That's their job. Yes. Right? They have to be able to go upstairs, uh -huh. rescue someone, put them over their back, carry them away to safety. Mm -hmm. What has that got to do with me in my life? Uh, right. Right? Yeah. How do you make that relevant for everyone rather than someone who's job depends on it true uh it is a mindset it's uh, you you want to have the mindset of hey uh, my desire is to be capable physically capable in the real world if the need arises and it, it starts with some of the simplest movements what is it to be capable in the real world well can you for instance from a standing position sit down without using your arms. It's a very simple uh, natural movement. Get up, get down. Um, and maybe you try to do that and you find yourself clumsy, losing balance, feeling stiff um, and not able to just do that. That's, mm. that's the simplest level of practical practicality of movement, real world movement. Now, what happens in more challenging situations? Uh, maybe... Um, uh, you do need to run fast one day. You need to jump uh, over an obstacle. You need to do that for yourself to get out of, uh, of harm, maybe to help someone, um, a neighbor, uh, a child, your own child, uh, your parent. Um, yeah. There are situations of life that are unexpected. They are. And it's a good idea to prepare yourself physically to be able to, again, operate your body in the most effective way in those situations. And even though such situations may never happen in your life, at least the knowing 
the awareness that you could respond properly, effectively, that your body is prepared um, for these movements. It gives you self-confidence. Self-confidence is very important in life. Yeah. If you, if you, if you um, believe, if you know, well, yeah, if that was to happen, I would be helpless. Well, it's not really a good feeling to feel that way. It's yeah. good to feel that you're capable and to know that you're capable. So how do you know you are? Well, you test yourself. Yeah. Self-confidence is key. Yes. And I think self-confidence in many ways sits behind everything you have been teaching yeah. and currently teach, whether it's yeah. natural movements or your new projects, the breath hold work meditation, I think self-confidence is key. Key. Because for both of those practices, you're not really learning by reading, you're learning by doing. Mm -hmm. And so you have what I consider to be the most powerful form of evidence, which is experiential evidence. Yes. Yeah. And I think many of us, and I've been guilty of this before as well, so I'm, I'm speaking from experience that nothing, nothing builds that inner reliance, that inner confidence better than actually being able to do something and know that you can do it. You mentioned as a, as a, as yes. a parent, right? Yes. This is a huge thing for me. You know, my kids are 12 and 10 at the moment. And I don't know, I'll give you an example. This isn't, I don't think, directly connected to your work, but I'm, I'm sure you can make a connection. Maybe three years ago or so, I did a swim run event for the first time, mm -hmm. okay? And I had never, ever swum in open water before. No? Never. I could swim lengths in a local council yes. pool, right? I'd never been into the sea. It's not something my mom and dad took me to do uh -huh. as, as, as a child. You know, they're Indian immigrants coming to the UK. You know, going to the beach, going to the sea was not part of what they wanted to experience or show their kids. But I've always been someone who's willing to throw myself in at the deep end. Like, I'll try anything. And Vivo Barefoot were running the swim run events. Uh -huh. I really liked the guys. Uh, I went down. I'd put a wetsuit on for the very first time that morning ever. I was thinking, wow, this is pretty tight. Yes. I, I, I don't know if this is what it should be. Everything feels a bit alien everything, to you. Everything was alien, right? But here's mm -hmm. the thing. Swim run is a bit of swimming, bit of running, bit of swimming, bit of running, bit of swimming, bit of running. It's an event that originated in Sweden. And the first swim was only 250 meters long. Easy distance, normally. Normally, easy distance. Normally. Right? I went in, after about 50 meters, I had a panic attack. I was scared. I I couldn't see the bottom, couldn't feel the bottom. I was like, oh man, I'm in the ocean. I wasn't that far from shore. And the whole process, um, it was really scary. Somehow I managed to complete it. I thought if I ever get to dry land again, I'm not getting back in this water, mm -hmm. right? But the reality is I did get back in. I thought I'll do the next run and then I'll see. But my inner 
desire to not be defeated meant I did go. I did the 500 meter swim. I did the one kilometer swim. I did all those things, but it was a struggle. When I completed the event, I felt amazing, right? Why am I telling you that story? The reason I feel that that story is relevant to what you just said about self-confidence is that I didn't like that feeling of being helpless in the yes. ocean. I thought, I'm a dad. If I'm ever on holiday and my kids are in the ocean, I can't do anything because I can't even manage myself, let alone manage the children. And I'm a, people would regard me as a fit, strong guy, right? I could go to the gym and work on the mirror muscles, right? And I could look good. But in that moment, I, I was powerless. So what did I do? A few weeks later on holiday, I got some open water swimming lessons. And now I'm a competent open water swimmer. I've taken my son on a swim run. We were in Cannes in France, big waves, windy, gale conditions. I'm swimming with him, no problem. So why this is relevant to your work, I feel is that I wouldn't let it defeat me. It, I felt incapable as a father. And by conquering that fear, by now mastering it, yes. like I'm not going to swim the English Channel, anything like that. But I feel now that if I'm on holiday this summer with my kids yes. and something happens, exactly. I have no problem. I will go in yes. and I can save them. Yes. And I think many of us don't have that inner confidence. Yes. I believe you have a, what I call, it's, it's, it's innately, intuitively, you have a, what I call physical uh, morality. It's like, a, a, it's part of a, a sense of duty that you have to have a baseline of physical capability that applies to the real world, just in case, just in case you do not want to find yourself helpless, not only to yourself, but also to others. And those others being priority, your wife and children, the, the most loved individuals to you, uh, the people you love the most, you want to be able to uh, protect them, to help them, to rescue them if you have to. And you know that in order to be able to do that, there's some level of preparation um, that needs to take place. And uh, you're not going to be ready for up and waters um, by just going to the gym. The context is completely different. The change of context is what caused your uh, near panic attack mm. on the first lap. You know how to swim. <laughs> The distance is nothing. Reasonably, your reason um, assesses that as no problem. But there's a part of you, unconsciously, that is unfamiliar with that open water context. Mm. It's wild. It's new. And therefore, it's intimidating and it's scary. And that takes away some of your strength, some of your confidence, mm. and it weakens you. And at the same time, it challenges you. And because you have a healthy response to that deep in your psyche, and that's part of our evolutionary memory, you're like, that's when I need to be strong. I must overcome this. I must show strength. I must go to the other side. And not only I must go to the other side, but then I must do that again. And you are in the moment where you needed to prove yourself to yourself, yeah. to yourself, not to anyone else, to yourself. And here's the thing relating to the fireman or the person listening or watching who thinks, yeah, but I'm not a fireman. 
I don't need to be able to swim in open water for my job. Yeah. Right. I don't need to. I don't I don't live near open water, right? So it's not relevant in my day-to-day life. But I think what it has given me, and I think that's what your work gives people, is something that you can't you can't quite measure. You can't go, oh, I can lift um, you know, 20 kilos now. I can now lift 25 kilos. Or if I do this, I'm gonna earn this much. This immeasurable inner feeling of reliance, I think is what is missing yes. hugely in society. It's not quantifiable. Yeah. You know, there's that era or the era, that trend of self-quantification. You want to measure everything. You've got wearables on your body, trackers. Um, you go to the gym, you have a program, mm. you have data, you have this and that, evidence-based protocols, this and that. That's, that's fine. It can be useful. It has a place. Um, there is all the immeasurable part of ourselves that is completely left behind in in that approach. And um, what can you quantify? Like speaking about that specific experience of you throwing yourself in that water and it's wild and you feel the the cold and it's dark or you don't know what's the bottom and there's a lot of unknown there. And so now you're facing your legit legitimate fears apprehensions like what is what is this how do how do i manage this your resiliency your psychological resiliency to overcome that and to anyways go through it how do you quantify that is 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 it even worthy of trying to quantify that it's completely irrelevant it's it's pure experience we don't need data we don't need evidence we don't need any tracker we don't need any quantification of what's happening in your heart in your brain in your body in all of that Forget about that because the most important is how you perform, not just physically, but mentally, how you overcome that's what is at the core of the experience. That's the beauty of it. That's the the goal in it. And you don't want to quantify that. You just want to experience that. It's very pure. Leave it that way. When many of us think of movement these days or fitness... My feeling is that it's all getting a bit mechanical and a bit protocol driven. And I think we're missing the humanness, the innate humanness of movement. Mm -hmm. I wonder where this comes from. I think it comes from um, sports, from uh, specialization. Um, It comes from the expectation of results. And therefore, if you have a protocol, you aim at specific results. They are limited results, um, but they're quantifiable. There's a path. Everything is like, you know, you follow a route. It's simple. You don't have to think too much. You just follow the program. And then you can say, hey, I've added uh, 50 pounds. I've added uh, that amount of time and, and this and that. Um, and that idea of uh, it has to be the most effective program to get that aspect of my fitness you know, higher than what it was. Um, whereas what's the original human nature you're talking about is let's remember all of us universally when we were kids, where we, did we need a program? So uh, a fitness program um, to, uh, did we need to go to the gym and exercise on machines so we could stand up and walk? Mm. No. All the uh, essential, most fundamental 
movement patterns, movement abilities, movement skills that we developed, the strength that goes with it that, that's necessary, the, the coordination, the proprioception, interoception, all it's extremely sophisticated when we look at the science of it. And yet we didn't need even to know how to speak to be able to speak the language mm -hmm. of movement, to learn movement, to explore movement, to play with it, to and to become adaptable. That's the program. It's very intuitive. Then we can always become more technical and systematic in specific outcomes, specific mm -hmm. uh, aspects of progress that we want. But we want to give ourselves also back that freedom of, yeah. I, I have that body, I want to explore it. It's, it. And no, instead of that, sit on that machine and the, that machine it's an exercise machine, it's very serious, it's going to dictate the exact movement pattern that you can do in that machine. Your legs can move that way, not that way. Your arms can move that way, not that way. You're going to isolate your body in different body yeah. parts. You're going to work them out isolately. They're going to be strong individually, but do they know how to work together? And then do they know how to adapt to a variation in the environment where you move? No. no, it's only if you practice natural movement that this is going to happen. As long as you place yourself in that environment where it's mechanical, the machines shape and dictate and therefore restrict your movement. And it's like work. Yeah. It's, it's like work. Now you count 10. Why 10? I don't know, just convention. I'll do 10, 10 on the left, 10 on the right, or 10 with my legs and 10 with my yeah. arms. Today I'm doing upper body, tomorrow I'm doing lower body. It's okay. It's, yeah. it's one approach of, you know, looking at the body, looking at fitness. Um, my, my approach is very simple. How should the tiger train to become and stay fit? What's the program for them? Should we bring them into a gym and say, hey, you're going to do this uh, for your strength, you'll acquire power, and then you'll do that for your cardio, add a bit of stretching, and now you're good to go. We'll plunk you back in the jungle somewhere so we can hunt animals and, and, <laughs> and you know, it doesn't make any sense. Um, but we get that. It sounds ridiculous when you does. say that about I know. a tiger. Yes. But many of us don't see that... We as humans are animals as well, and we're living in a kind of zoo. Yes. Whereby <laughs> yes, we, a we, zoo, a farm, or whatever yeah. that is. And, uh, but anyone with a cat or a dog will know, you know, cats will stretch, they'll stretch their entire yes. body. But Since they're little, little ones, little cubs like baby animals are just like human animals, like the cutest thing on earth. Adorable. And what is yeah. it that they all want to do universally? That it's the baby, the, the human baby. The the, yeah. the little tiger, uh, the, the little baby pet, whatever, whichever, whatever the species is, they want to play, they want to move, they try, they experiment, all kind of things. They roll and they fall and they fail, and that's why they're so cute. And then they they repeat a lot. They explore mm. one thing. And they're like, oh, oh, that was fun. That's new. Oh, I repeat a lot and fail and do it again, and and that's how they learn to master their body to make it become effective. And when you look at it. It's a, a, a program, it's a, it's a drive, it's a universal drive, and they're going to have a natural movements 
What is their natural movement? It's a, it's a whole scope of natural movements that are specific to their species. So obviously the natural movement of the dolphin is not the natural movement of the eagle, not the natural movement of the giraffe. And the natural movement of the human being, you know, we don't need to do bear crawls or crab crawls or whatever, kangaroo. Why? Because we are not these animals. It can be fun to pretend that sometimes that we're, oh, I'm a wolf. I'm a, all yeah. right, I'm a frog. Fine. But human beings are very versatile in the way they move. A few, few species on earth can do all the things that humans can do. We can run, we can jump, we can balance, we can mm -hmm. move on all fours, we can um, climb things, we can lift and carry things, we can throw and catch things, we can um, yeah. fight, we can go, go in the water, swim, we can hold our breath and dive. It's incredible. And I ask a dolphin to climb up a tree, it's going to be alien to them. So we have a, an incredible potential for a wide variety of movement abilities. And remember, you, you were saying, hey, when I was a kid, I wanted to do all these movements. And what limited you? Society, school, parenting fear, mm -hmm. you know, and the list goes on. Are you the only one? No. That's pretty much all of us in our civilized societies. I was lucky that not only I was permitted to do these movements, but I was encouraged to do these yeah. movements. When I, I was a kid, I lived, the house was right next to uh, uh, like a little Fontainebleau, yeah. uh, you know, like boulders, uh, hills, uh, woods. And my parents were like, no, no, you're not watching TV or in fact, not much to watch on TV back then in the seventies. <laughs> um, but like, you go outside and you go play and they would let me go miles away from home as as long as I was back on time for dinner. Yeah. And as long as I'd already done my homework after school and then I could go play and I would go climb those boulders and run and up and down hill, move on yeah. all fours. So I'm very lucky that way. But uh, that idea of natural movement was, look, it's part of you. And if you never got to experience fully that potential for natural movement in your body, if you were limited, if it wasn't part of your physical education, if the only physical education that you ever received was, okay, learn the, to throw the ball that way and these are the rules of such game and do bicep scrolls and this, you know, that's, it's extremely incomplete. Yeah. You mentioned the word versatility. You know, humans are versatile. If we look back and how we've evolved, that versatility would have been key to our survival. Completely. Right? That's what makes us unique. Mm -hmm. And then I contrast that with you talking about that fixed, isolating machine in the gym. Mm -hmm. Versatility is a word that evokes all kinds of different movements and different planes. Mm -hmm. Yet the isolation machine is very much one plane. It's it's the opposite of versatile, isn't it? It's very, very yes. specific. And, and again, you know, it may have a role for someone at some time for a particular yes. thing that they're Rehab trying to do. Or very specific yeah. sports and performance. There's a place for everything. But you want you want us all to have that natural movement base. Because I believe it's, it's the base. I believe it's the foundation. 
So um, you add on the specialization on right. top once you have the base, but yeah. don't specialize early and forget the base. Yes, because when you look at pretty much all sports, where are they based on natural movements? How do you play tennis? How do you play soccer? Well, you have to run. Uh, rock climbing, well, they made climbing on a specific type of surface a specialty. And within that specialty in climbing, you have bouldering, you have different mm -hmm. types of competitions. Running is the same. You take running only, so you forget about all the other natural movement abilities. You forget about climbing, you forget about moving on all fours, you forget about balancing, you forget about jumping, you forget about lifting, you forget about it all. You just focus on running. And then in that specialty itself, then you split that into more specialties. So marathon, half marathon, sprint, um, ultra marathon, uh, trail running, yeah. cross, you name it. And you can specialize within that specialty and you do the same with uh, lifting and you do the same with jumping and you do the same with everything. And then you have the 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 so those can be individual sports where you perform as an individual and then you have uh, team sports. Um, but where you play basketball, what are you doing? You're running and you're throwing and you're catching all natural movements. And then you make it a game. But none of the sports would exist without the fact that we have natural body with natural abilities to move. Yeah. So that's the foundation. It's always there. We were querying where does this come from? Where, you know, where has the drive or where has the impetus been for us, for many of us to get so far removed from that natural human movement? You mentioned sport could be one of those reasons, but I think that's another reason. Um, I think if I reflect on my own life, I remember being in my secondary school changing room. I was mm. at an all-boys school. And I remember getting ready for, I don't know, football or PE or something and feeling really self-conscious that I was this skinny Indian kid that you could see my ribs. The same here. <laughs> yeah. Except but, not Indian, but... <laughs> Yeah, so, so it's the same feeling inside. It's the same experience. Yeah, there's, there's something there where you think, wow, I don't like this. And I wonder if it was at the same time where men's health was starting to come out and uh, yeah. be in prominence. Mm -hmm. I, I can't say it was 100%, but I do remember around the time of 16, 17, me reading men's health religiously. Mm -hmm. And I remember one day coming back from school thinking, right, I'm sick of being this skinny kid. Yeah. And I became obsessed with doing press-ups and sit-ups pretty much every day. Yeah. Sure, yeah, you build up pecs. At what you, age? I don't know, but I'm going to guess around 15, 14. 14, 15. Something like yes. that, right? But here's the funny thing is that, you know, from the outside, you could probably look good. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got a good physique. But then in my 20s, I was crippled with backache, right? So. Yes. I looked on the outside that I had a really good physique, but functionally I couldn't do much, right? I couldn't lift chairs around the house, sofas. I couldn't move beds, you know, because my back would go and all these sort of things. And there's a long story there, but yes. I guess the point I'm trying to get to is 
magazines like Men's Health with images of uh, ripped men for many years will have driven many boys, teenagers, adolescents to go, that is what I need my body to look like. And yeah. many people are trying to get those bodies. Yes. So they're getting gym bodies yes. that look good, but aren't functional. And I guess if we expand that even further, Irwin, I guess women, some women would say, this is what women have had to put up with for decades. You know, these images of what a woman should look Self, like. Being self-conscious about your physical... Uh, yeah, so so I guess the, the point I'm trying image. to make, which I feel speaks to your work, is that I think many of us have gone for physique first, function second. Yes. Instead of function first, physique second. Completely, completely. Just taking a quick break to give a shout out to Vivo Barefoot, one of the sponsors of today's show. Now, I am a huge fan of Vivo Barefoot shoes. I've been wearing them for over 10 years now, well before they started supporting my podcast. And they really have had a huge impact on my own life, as well as that of my family, many of my friends, and a lot of my patients. Now, in today's conversation, we're talking a lot about natural movement. Is there anything more natural than moving your body barefoot? I really would love to see more and more people experiment with wearing barefoot shoes because I have seen so many benefits when people start wearing them. I've seen improvements in all kinds of things, hip pain, knee pain, foot pain, sometimes things like plantar fasciitis. It's amazing how many times people will say their back pain gets better automatically. And you'll also find that people will say they generally enjoy their movement more because when you're walking around in barefoot shoes like Vivo's, you automatically become more mindful of the experience. And contrary to what you might initially think, most people find Vivo's really, really comfortable. In fact, many people who try them tell me they would never go back to wearing cushioned shoes. So have you given Vivo's a go yet? Have you thought about it? I mean, if you've not yet, I wonder why not. They really can be life-changing for many. And I do think that this time of year is perfect for you to give them a try. Spring is in the air. Many of us want to move more now because of the lighter mornings and the warmer temperatures. So why not take the plunge and give them a go this spring? Because remember, it's completely risk-free to do so. Vivo offer a 100-day trial for new customers. So if you're not happy, you just send them back for a full refund. If you go to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more, they are giving 15% off as a one-time code to all of my podcast listeners. Terms and conditions apply. To get your 15% off codes, all you have to do is go to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more. Athletic Greens are also sponsoring today's show. Now I get it. You already know that nutrition is important for your physical and mental well-being. And ideally, for sure, everybody would get all of their nutrition from real whole food. But I know from 21 years now of seeing patients, 
that a lot of us struggle to consistently find the time to get the nutrition that we want. Busy schedules, poor sleep, too much stress, there's all kinds of reasons. That's why I'm a fan of good quality whole food supplements like AG1. One tasty scoop contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, prebiotic, green superfood blend, and more in one convenient daily serving. It helps support energy and focus, aids with gut health and digestion, and it also helps support a healthy immune system, something that is critical, especially at this time of year. Now, AG1 has been in my own life for over three years now, and I genuinely think it is one of the best whole food supplements out there. If you want to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. For listeners of the show, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you can access a brand new special offer where they are offering my audience a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs. Now, vitamin D is a crucial nutrient for our immune system. Many of us have suboptimal levels, especially at this time of year. So I think it's a really great offer to take advantage of. You can see all details of this special offer by going to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. I went through the same stage uh, being a um, that transition that teenage uh, time is so intense and uh, you are going to start seeking inner strength self-confidence yeah. yeah you need to feel that uh, you yeah you have some strength of your own and uh, mental strength physical strength um, and looking good that way looking stronger is going to make you feel more confident. There's a, a, a level of uh, it. You know, often we look at uh, doing push-ups and or working out in a gym as something entirely physical. In truth, the drive is completely psychological. It's all within. It's all about a perception of ourselves that we find satisfying and reassuring because we're like, okay, now I'm big enough. I look good. I look good enough to a certain standard, and now I feel that uh, it gives me a, an advantage. It gives me a stability. It's all psychological. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's the psyche that drives that behavior and that uh, expectation—the expectation of that physical, yeah. cosmetic outcome. And by the way, it's—it's. It's, I like to say it's—it is legitimate. Everyone wants to look good. A woman wants to look good. A man wants to look good. Yeah. Not everyone is confident that they can look like that or that they can put the work mm. work to look like that. And it's true also, and you pointed that out, it's very true. It, it's a legit expectation to want to look good, but if you make that your priority and only expectation, then something is going to be missing when actually when you train for physical competency that applies to the real world, that's movement, that's natural movement. You will have the the improvement of your body. You will also have more energy, well-being. And because you will become really aware through experience, through verification, oh, I could jump like this. I could run that fast. I could run that long. I could do all these movements. It gives you that sense of confidence, 
that stems not from the reflection of your body in the mirror, that stems yeah. from the experience, the real life experience of, I can do these movements, so I'm capable, so I'm self-confident. It's, it's regrounded. These magazine images of what the perfect male or the perfect female looks like <laughs> are incredibly problematic. Yes. Because it, it keeps feeding, you know, that, you know, how can we get more? Oh, we need a better looking six pack now, you know, like many things that can be taken to extremes. And one of the things I've really enjoyed experiencing about my own body over the past few years is when I was getting into open water swimming and doing a lot of swimming. Mm -hmm. And just to be clear, I'm no expert swimmer. I'm just competent. I'm not particularly fast. I wouldn't say I'm particularly good at it, but I can get around a pool or an ocean, right? Yes. I'm, I'm competent. That alone is enough. That alone is enough. You don't need to be a gold medalist. You don't need to yeah. be ranking anywhere. There's no... Uh, it's, it's a simple validation. It's that simple. The validation is I'm capable of doing that. Yeah, I verified for myself. Yes. And then the fun thing is, is that your body starts to change in response to what you do. Now, I know that makes sense. It's obvious when we think about it. But, you know, I have not for many years have I been to the gym. But, um, you know, when I used to go to the gym... You know, I remember at uni in my early 20s, you know, we'd go, some of the friends, we'd go and work out and yeah. do stuff together. And I've done that too with my I, brothers. I, yeah. yeah. And again, they weren't particularly functional. It was who can bench press the most and all yes. this stuff. And again, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But no, no. your physique has a certain look yes. because those are the inputs. When I was swimming a lot, your physique starts to change. Your muscular starts to change you know, a lean physique, but in a different way. And then when you start swimming, you do a lot of running, your physique starts to change. And it's, I don't know, I really like that to, to realize that my body, the way I look physically is a consequence of the movements I choose to do. Yes. And I always remember this moment here when in Chamonix in France. In the Alps, yeah. Yeah, foot of Mont Blanc. I spent a Beautiful lot of time area. in Chile. Oh, yes. one of my favorite places. Yes. We went in the summer holidays, maybe five, six years ago. And it was hot. And I think one day, for whatever reason, we went to the pool. Mm -hmm. Now, this is really, really interesting. And I think this speaks to natural movement. We went to the pool in the summer, hot day. So, of course, men and women are all in their sort of swimming costumes. And... I like the swimming costume image. Swimming costume. I just like that. Yeah, what would, what would you call it? <laughs> it's just, I don't know. It's just the idea of a costume. When I hear the word costume, I imagine something really fancy. I, and you all. know, it's yeah. interesting that, isn't it? Because <laughs> I've, never, I've never analyzed what a funny term it is, a costume to go yes. swimming. But that's yes. what we call it in yes. England. Um, but what was striking was that the physique of everyone... And what was striking to me was how fit everyone looked. Fit. Mm -hmm. These weren't gym-honed bodies, right? You know, you know what a gym-honed body looks like. You do. We see it in magazines. We know yes. what people are after. So some people had a bit of a belly or a bit of this or a bit of that, but it was you could tell they were strong, functional mountain people, right? 
you know, mountain guides or there'd be ski instructors or they'd have a restaurant up and whatever. But these are guys who have to be able to get up hills, have to be able to carry stuff up, have to be able to uh, navigate difficult situations in the mountains. And their physiques were strong and powerful, but they weren't gym honed physiques. Yes. Yes, because depending on the, the type of physical activity that you do, your, your, your body uh, adapts and transforms if there's the plasticity of the body accordingly. And so uh, there are body types and um, sometimes, uh, uh, I don't know, I would, I would see someone and say, you do triathlon? Like, how do you know? Just, you know, like yeah. in, in, the, in the summer, you can better see bodies, what they look like. And so if you go to the gym, if there is a way that you alter your body, that you modify your body, um, that is specific um, and, and you can see typically. Uh, the way I spot it is stiffness. Stiffness. Mm -hmm. uh, typically. Um, I think you said once in an article I read that you've, you've met guys who can bench huge amounts, yes. but they can't what, bend over to pick up a pen or something? Like, I can't remember what it was you yeah, said. Yeah, there's that, or uh, or they would be out of breath uh, running, you know, one mile, one kilometer or something. Because you adapt specifically to whichever challenge you repeat yeah. consistently. So, yeah, you've witnessed uh, athletes, so people who were physically active, but in a way, and not only they were moving more naturally, they were also moving more outside. Mm -hmm. And which means also in environment that are, that force the mind to be alert and to operate the body in adaptable ways. And why is this important? Because, well, again, the difference between repeating exactly the same movement over and over in a very specific way to work out um, very specific muscles, well... And then you have, you're outside and you have to move a different way a little when you do trail running. It has nothing to do with running on a treadmill mm. because up and down and going to the left, going to the right, you change angles. So all the joints are moving in a completely different way. Yeah. Um, so they become a, a adapted and they evolve. And then you are outside and then there's the sun and there's the rain, there's the freshness of the air and there is your your eyes, your vision is looking at a horizon, at a change in, in, in luminosity. There's, mm -hmm. there's a lot of things. You're exposed to the, um, the forces of nature. You're not isolated, indoors, surrounded by machines, being very strict about the specific movement patterns that you do. It's, there's more freedom. There is more uh, variety. There's more yeah. variability, you become more adaptable, you become more flexible, you become more alert. And you want to look at the, the, the whole picture that way. Yeah. And I like that idea of being uh, versatile, more than uh, overly specialized. And I do acknowledge um, the value of specialization, you know, including in sports, to become really good at something. You must specialize to some uh, extent. I I know what it is. I've done it. I've practiced multiple specialized sports uh, at different times of my life. Yeah. But I never forget one thing. My baseline is to be adept, you know, capable, good enough. I have my own baseline at everything real world. 
I want to be able to run fast enough. I want to be able to run long enough. I want to be able to climb these kind of surface and that kind of surface. I want to be able to hold my breath. I want to be able to swim. I want to be able to handle the cold. I want to be able to handle the heat. I want to be able to handle not having food and to keep going. I want to be able to lift and to carry. I want to be, I want to maintain that capability because I value it. It's part of who I am. Yeah. And I don't settle for less. I'm not telling myself, well, at this point, you know, I'm 51. Why care? Why is this relevant to me? <laughs> it's relevant to me because it is a part of me. Yeah. I cannot see myself not being able to do these things uh, and not practicing those movements at all. I enjoyed them when I was a kid. I enjoyed them when I was a teenager. I enjoyed them when I was a young adult. I enjoy them today. And I'll keep enjoying them for as long as I can. Yeah. Natural movement is fun, right? A lot of people yes. will say, I find the gym boring. It's not for me. Now, I also like you want to acknowledge that many people love the gym, right? Yeah. Many people love going. They get camaraderie there. They enjoy their workouts that they're doing. Yes. And... and None of us, I don't think, are criticizing that. We're, Satisfaction is more important and community. But I do feel that natural movement is something that could bring a lot of people who shy away from movement into movement. Look, we've talked about physiques. I'm, we're not, I'm not here to talk about physiques necessarily, right? I, I, I was using the swimming pool in Chamonix just as an example. Mm -hmm. Many people are very body conscious Right, yeah. they for whatever reason, uh, emotional reasons, physical reasons, behavioral, whatever it might be, have ended up being in a position in their life where they don't like the way they look. Okay, yeah. they feel frustrated, and then they might listen to this podcast or other podcasts or hear people and go, "Right, I need to move more." And for that person who's listening, everyone who goes, "Look, I don't look like you. I, I you talk about running and sprinting and swimming." I just want to get some movement into my life. Yes. What would you say to that person? Yeah, well, well, it, it, it can be so simple. How simple? How simple is um, uh, moving on all fours. It's uh, balancing on a simple board. It's uh, hanging and swinging. It's lifting objects and carrying them on a few steps, like, like the most simple, most basic. It's exploring a variety of movement patterns that have always been around in your life the same way you did when you were a little kid. Yeah. And if you have kid, kids yourself, if you're a parent, <laughs> just, just join them. <laughs> you know, that's, if that's the simplest, it's like, why don't you participate? They're showing you the wave, a wave that you've forgotten. Right. Then of course you can always, because what we teach the, the move that method that I've designed was okay. Um, of course it may not be, uh, sufficient to just tell people, oh, you just have to move naturally. It's going to happen. You know, you're going to move better very quickly. It's, you're going to reawaken to your birthright, to your natural potential. You'll, you'll move beautifully in no time. It does not always happen like that, in fact. So you can also approach it a little more like a martial art. And the idea, in fact, what, what is it a martial art? Um, it's the idea of uh, defending yourself and to fight also when you have to. Isn't it an innate ability that we all have? 
to defend ourselves? Don't we have some basic ability to kick and throw a fist or want to bite or want to grapple or something? We all played yeah. like that when we were kids, right? So what is it that a, um, a martial art is going to teach you? Efficiency, techniques, so that you can turn what's an innate instinctive ability into a skill, a, a, an ability to perform those innate movements in a way that's the most efficient possible. And that's why when you show up to a dojo or a you know, MMA academy or whatever, they're not looking at you and be like, eh, a little skinny or you, you know, maybe a little overweight. How about you go to the gym and do some physical conditioning, come back when you're fit enough. That's not the, that's not the way it works. They just take you as you are. You practice the movements, you become mindful, you learn to better operate your body, you learn the, the sequence and the timing of the yeah. positions and all. And as you be, you repeat mindfully the movement, you become more efficient in those movements, physiological adaptations happen that you are going to lose that weight. You're going to uh, grow those muscles, you're going to get stronger, you're going to get more flexible, etc. Everything falls into place that way. Okay, expand that idea to all the whole scope of natural movement abilities. You can, anyone has a basic ability to run or to jump or yeah. to move on all fours. What's there to learn? Well, <laughs> you can do it. And then similarly to a martial art approach, then you can learn techniques to become more efficient at those techniques. But first, have some fun. Just explore, move, feel free, feel ex you know, amazing because you're given permission to move in ways that you probably forgot and you haven't done in so yeah. long. And maybe you were prevented as a kid to do that. So what you said, joy, enjoyment, um, so important because you're very much more likely to stick to a practice of something that you enjoy doing. Yeah. That's something that feels like a chore. And when you look at it, for most people, going to the gym feels like a chore. They have to force themselves to do it. It feels like a punishment for supposedly being lazy or whatever judgment they have about themselves or their body. We want to inspire them to be like, look, you got it. You got a natural body. It has already amazing abilities. You just need to reawaken that potential. And then we'll support you. We'll teach you, you know, great techniques so you can really become great at yeah. those movements. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I mean, it is thinking about how we make enjoyable movements more accessible to more people. You can't really go far wrong with natural movement because you don't need to get anything. You don't need to buy anything necessarily. You don't need to yeah. travel to a specific location that is designed for movement. Right. The more you start to analyze these things, the more kind of crazy they start to sound a little bit. That yes. You, we have to drive somewhere in order to move our bodies. Yes. Like if you if you go back a thousand years, and I, I look, I, I get it. Society has changed. The way we have structured civilized society, the way we've set it up, means that actually we do need to help people now get back to moving more. So, so I do understand that, but it is a little bit crazy. But... A lot of us who are listening to you right now, mm -hmm. Erwin, could jump at home. Little yeah. jumps, big jumps. Deep squat, 
short jumps. Um, when you say all fours, do you mean literally crawling around your living room on your hands and knees? Yes. And you can just do like a one, two, three, four forward, one, two, three, four, you know, backwards if you don't have a lot of space. And when the, the weather is nice enough in the garden, at a local park maybe, if, uh, you know, you're not too concerned about what you think pe people may think of you. <laughs> you, have to, you have to also uh, give yourself permission. So if someone is thinking, everyone, that, okay, great, I need to move more. I keep hearing Wongan talk to guests. They keep talking about we need to move more for physical health and mental health and emotional health. Okay, yeah. I get it. You're saying in my living room, go on all fours, yeah. back and forth. Yeah. What are that person's thinking? Yeah, but what's that going to do for me? It's a departure from what um, most people deem normal. Because mm. again, we're taught from a young age that, hey, don't do that. You're going to get dirty. Don't do that. Uh, you could, uh, you know, hurt yourself. Or don't do that because it's inappropriate. It's inappropriate because it's not the right place. It's not the right time. It's never the right place and it's never the right time. We're denying that freedom of movement that's innate in you that you want to express because you're just a kid. That's what you want to do and have fun with it. We're telling you from early on, either verbally and directly, we make you understand it's a no, or just by looking at you or making you feel that it's a no, behave, sit, limit your physical expression. That's where it starts. And then once you have been limited that way and that you have consciously or unconsciously accepted that it's just no, it's a no, that's it. Like, I can't do that. No, I cannot vault over the table. I cannot crawl underneath the table. I cannot jump off the roof and climb the tree outside. I can't do any of that. Mm. Otherwise, there will be consequences. Then one day, they, some adults, some, you know, whatever, in school, they look at you and be like, hmm, you need some exercise, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah, now you need to be strong. All of a sudden, now that physical education becomes important. Oh, now you have to do, and what? Oh, you have to do the push-ups. You have to do the running. You have to, and you're like, oh, my God, like, I don't feel in shape at all. Well, yeah, you've been denied that, uh, that freedom of yours of moving naturally since, you know, um, almost day one. And they let you do some, you know, until age three, four, yeah. five. And then start to be like, no, 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 no. And then they're like, okay, now we're going to instruct you in what is proper movement. All right, so this is the proper way to do a biceps curls. Uh, this is the proper way to um, uh, make your abdominal uh, stronger, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, uh, really, it's like... It's the wrong way around. I know. It's like, uh, it's, it's the same with food. You know, like uh, you, you take away all the native foods, all the like, original foods food that are really nutritious and all. And once you fed people with, uh, they're malnourished, they're overfed but malnourished, and then you're telling them, oh, okay, now you need to add that supplement. So it's the same idea. You take away all the, the, the richness, the wealth of movement, all that potential from the kids, and then you give them a little supplement. Oh, we're going to do those, um, those abdominal exercises. <laughs> Now you're going to do the stretches and we'll yeah. add a bit of cardio on the side and then that's it. That's enough. But it's important that you, it's like another chore. It's like, what is this? What kind of circus is this? It's, it's funny, like abs are something that a lot of people want, right? A lot of people want abs. But what you realize <laughs> is, and you will know this, but I've experienced in my own life, um, 
like I've been working with this, uh, I, I really dislike calling Helen a running coach because I think it is such a limiting label for what she does. And the impact she's had on my life has been absolutely phenomenal. Wonderful. But as she helps me to unlock more of how my body is designed to move, mm -hmm. your abs just start showing. You, you can start to feel your abs because your body's working in the way it's designed. So we have never done a single ab exercise, but just by properly, you know, proper rotation with your torso as you're running, proper uh, muscle sequencing as you move naturally. Whole body movements. Whole body whole movement. body movements. And, and the it, abs are right happens. in the middle, they have to connect. They have to connect. But this whole idea, well, I remember reading Men's Health as a 14, 15 year old. And now with my understanding of the human body and biomechanics thinking, I will have completely messed up my body's movement <laughs> by being in this sort of crunch position, trying to actively tense uh, yes. my abs so that I could look in the mirror so and go- So that they could show because like people want abs. Like, what I do know. you mean? You have abs, your abs are, you know- It's crazy. They're right there. <laughs> what you want is to make them visible so that you feel good about your body and it makes you feel good in your psyche. Uh, that's it. But it's, it's conditioned because- It the, is conditioning. And the more we're having this conversation now, the more I think, I think there's a real, I think there's a mental health component here. I also think, Something that's been coming up for me over the last five, 10 minutes is this idea that whenever we detach or separate the outcome of what we want from the actual natural process that would lead to it, we cause problems. So like with abs, right? We don't do the natural movements that would mean we end up having strong functional abs. We want to leapfrog that and do the ab movement. Just do the minimum. To do the, to, to get, get the abs. The specific, uh... but, but then also, um, I had a patient once who had really bad body dysmorphia, mm -hmm. right? Now I want to be really clear. I'm not an expert in body dysmorphia. It's on the rise in men, it's on the rise of women. What was remarkable about this guy, lovely guy, absolutely lovely guy, bodybuilder, completely ripped, big pecs, big arms, big abs. But it's not enough. It's not enough. He thinks he's skinny. He thinks he's skinny. There you I go. Know. He would look in the mirror and say, all I see is a skinny guy. And I'm, I was, I remember thinking, wow, you have bigger muscles than maybe anyone I've seen yes. recently. Yet what you see is someone who doesn't have big enough muscles. You consider yourself yes. skinny. And again, I'm not here to say, I know the exact etiology of body dysmorphia in every situation, but relating to this point, whenever you separate that end goal, which would have been a natural byproduct of certain natural evolutionary movements mm. or practices, whenever you just try and get the outcome without going through the process, I think we run into problems. And I suspect hey, you did not find satisfaction and joy in the very practice of working out. Yeah. That's the problem. It doesn't matter how much he works out, doesn't matter how much he weight he, he puts on, it's never enough. So it's a defici deficiency issue. So enjoyment is key. 
Because enjoyment means you expect instant gratification. Like, what do you mean? Like, no, 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 I'm not supposed to expect instant gratification. Like, I know I have to work hard and then I have to wait and be patient. Yeah, I understand that. This is also very important to delay gratification. means to understand just because you do one practice session doesn't mean that's it, you're done and you've achieved already everything. But instant gratification means you find a real measure of satisfaction as you are doing what it is that you are doing. And for instance, natural movement is very satisfying that way. And one of the reasons is because you must be mindful. Why? Well, because you cannot close your eyes, listen to music, watch a show as you work out and exercise because you're doing it, but you, it's like chore, it's more work. And you're like, I got to do it. You know, I got to commit to it. I'm a committed person. But I'm watching a show. I'm looking at my phone while I'm writing or something, whatever. Because I'm here, but I'm not here. I, it's just, I want to do several things. The thing I'm doing in itself is not satis satisfactory enough for me to completely be in the here and now. In natural movement, let's say you jump from here to there. Now, if you don't open your eyes, if you don't focus, if you're not mindful, because you may operate your body, but the body does not operate itself. What drives the movement is not the muscles, it's not the nerves, it's intention. And that intention to jump from here to there and to land in a way that is soft, that is stable, that is safe, you'd better be present. Because you must be present, because you cannot have a luxury of just looking around and thinking around and thinking about something else, being absorbed in something else, you must be absorbed in the very movement. Yeah. You must be in the here and now. And that here and now, that is priceless. It's That's really something that's rare and missing in today's society. Yeah. It's is appreciating the now. So in that mindfulness, it's a demand of the practice of natural movement, of movement, you are really pulled into the here and now. And so, and it's just enjoyable. Like, oh, I'm going to have to jump. And it's real. It's not just a jump for plyometrics. It's not just a jump, count, count one to 10, do 10 reps, then do another series of 10 reps because that's a program and that's for fitness and physiological adaptation is going to be triggered. That's all good and that's all true. But you forget about that. You forget about the repetitions. You, every single repetition is just one moment that you try to achieve efficiency yeah, and you're in the moment and it's satisfactory like deeply. So that is the instant gratification I'm talking about. If you don't have that in whatever practice you do, then it's a chore, then it's work. Yeah. It's deeply satisfying. Right? It has That's to be. That's the key. And, and fun, even when it's hard. Even when it's hard, there's a purpose. You've got to jump. You've got to make that jump, right? Now there's videos on YouTube of you doing some crazy stuff, which is phenomenal. And I watch it and I think, <laughs> I want to learn that. I want to be able to do that. But it's simple stuff that, you know, you're a parent and you are going for a walk with your kids yeah. in the woods. Mm -hmm. And there's been a gale the day before. So there's a tree that's blown or something. And you have to take a different route or you have to make a little jump yeah. to get by. These things happen. Yeah. That's real life. But we, we've been 
conditioned to think everything's safe, everything's going to be tarmacked for us. There's going to be a walkway. But as soon as you go out to nature, you realize sometimes unpredictable things happen. Yeah, You have to be able to respond and adapt. The other thing, Owen, is you were talking about making that jump. For me, I don't have any evidence to back this statement up. But I have often wondered, if you're in the gym, and let's take this out of the gym. This is not an anti-gym podcast or anything like that, right? No. If you're, if you are doing some form of let's let, you know, let's use the gym. So I think it's a good example. I have trained in the gym sometimes and enjoy the variety and go, oh, that's, exactly. that's different. It's, it's me too, good. right? There's there's many great yes. gyms and um, the the point I'm trying to make is if you are, let's say you're having a 40 minute gym workout, yeah, and you know, you sort of want to do it, but you're like, oh man, I need to do this because I said it to myself, I was going to do it. But to distract yourself, you, uh, as you say, you put in the earphones so that you can get through the tedium of that workout that you are meant to do. Yes. I've often wondered about surely the impact of that on our body, mind, and soul will be limited compared to being fully present. It must be. Like, oh, yeah? you, as humans, we talk about generalism versus specialism. We are generalists, right? And we want the, all those inputs, the eyes, the ears, the body, when we're making this movement. Yes. But I think many of us can't stand movement so much that we we numb the whole process. Yes, and um, and at the same time, you could also say, "Hey, uh, I'm lifting that uh, that bar, and it's heavy. I'm doing heavy squats or something, or I'm doing something else, and then I'm listening to that music, and that's ex- the music. True, it uplifts me. I'm like now, it's like a, it makes the workout amplified. I'm really enjoying. It looks, it feels like I'm in a movie, or uh, you know, I'm. It's it it, it can uplift. Uh, it can magnify a workout too. So uh, it's not the music, then, is it? It's the intention. It's the because the music isn't necessarily or the podcast yeah. that they're listening to is not necessarily the problem. It's are you doing it to numb and distract yourself so that you yes. can put up with it, or are you doing it to enliven and energize yes. the process? Could you be more raw and minimalist in your approach? Like, would you yeah. feel comfortable? Um, in fact, for instance, doing the same kind of movement, the same kind of effort, but you don't have your fancy shoes, you don't have your music, you don't have the mirrors, you don't have people looking at you, maybe and you're outside and maybe it's drizzling or raining or windy and the surface is uneven and the object you're going to lift is completely natural you have no idea how much weight that is yeah. you can't possibly measure it and you're not in the optimum position or stance to lift it and yet it's the equivalent of being with your children and instead of going around in a park and everything is is just a loop no you're getting on maybe off a track in the woods and now you have to step over step under have to pay attention and there's a whole variety and then you, it's live, it's real. So it may be not always that either or yeah. proposition, but the idea is like, can you have adversity? Can you be comfortable 
when you're out of a context that you're normally familiar with and that makes you feel safe and all of a sudden it's it's completely different yeah and therefore challenging it's like can you get out of the swimming pool no more chlorine uh you can't see the bottom there's maybe some waves some wind some uh, current temperature is uh, probably colder etc etc and now it's a completely different swimming experience yeah it's the idea of exposing oneself to a greater variety of context so you can enrich your experience thanks to it and your ability who you are yeah eventually i'm trying to think about practicalities and you're talking about the swimming pool to make it really granular and specific i guess if someone listening likes to swim well at the end of the swimming pool instead of taking the stairs out you could just practice pushing yourself up yes i know it's it's a simple thing right but yes. it came to my head to think that's kind of natural movement you're in a body of water and you are using your arm you, you have to coordinate everything in order to move your mass up it is completely a natural movement yeah. and Climbing up the ladder would be a natural movement too. That's true. <laughs> Standing, walking are natural movements. Sitting down, even on a chair, is a natural movement. Um, carrying bags of groceries, those are natural movements. They mm. are all those are natural movement is everywhere in our life since day one and every day. Nobody's sitting on their couch all day and having no movement to do to be able to make a living or to take care of themselves, feed themselves, etc. The scope of the movements that, of the natural movements that we perform on a day-to-day -day basis has been absurdly limited, absurdly shrunk to a strict minimum of what, what do you do? Okay, so you, you sleep in, on a bed all night, you're lying down, then you stand up, and maybe go to, go to the shower, you stand, you shower, then you're going to sit and have maybe a breakfast. Then you're going to uh, walk a few steps to go to your car or to your home office. And you're going to sit again or you're going to commute, sit while you commute in whichever way. Go to an office, sit more. And you walk a few steps to go to the coffee machine or something, <laughs> right? And then you're done with your work. So you commute back, you're probably going to sit back in some kind of either a train, a metro. Um, then they're going to uh, be back home, feel tired, sit more. And then occupy themselves, even maybe doing some more work, watching a show, going on social media, hopefully, you know, uh, having a relationship with someone or with a family and, you know, having yeah. some interaction. And then it's time to go back to bed. So when you look at, if you were to film every single movement as a continuum and accelerate it, and make, uh, let's say, 14, 16 hours of wake life into one minute or two minutes. It goes super fast. And then all you see is mostly sitting and a few like moments where you stand up, <laughs> sit back down, walk a few steps. How do you walk? With shoes on, on flat, stable, linear, predictable surfaces. Where's the challenge? Where's the variety? Where's the variability? Where's the intensity? What's your body, body doing? Not much. And yet you may feel exhausted in your body. 
you know what? It's not because you do too much with your body. It's because you don't do enough with your body. So it doesn't have any more energy because it does not have to deploy anything. It's, it doesn't have to adapt to anything. And that is going to have an impact on your brain. It's mm-hmm. going to depress you because the reason why we have a brain and a neurologist uh, will, will confirm that, explain that actually, is that we have a brain for movement. Yeah. We don't have a brain to talk about abstract things, even though that's one of the wonderful things the brain can do is high-level cognition, abstract yeah. uh, considerations and interpretations. And But originally, the reason why we have a brain is that we can move in adaptable ways through complex, changing, sometimes unpredictable environment. This is... Something that, you know, MIT, like they have in the robotics, they have a big challenge having robots doing that, even though they're like really making fast progress in that direction. That's really scary. But the ability to do that means an amazing computer, which is the brain, because what is it that you do when you move in nature, Mm -hmm. not in our conventional, predictable, safe environments, indoors environment? It's fortune telling almost. It's like you have to predict mm. where you're going, how you're going to get there and adapt on the way because you have visual input, you have sensor input. You're like, oh, I need to modify my position like this and like that. You can't think about that. Your thinking is too slow to handle that. Oh, I'm going to extend my leg for where yeah. will place my foot there. It's too slow. You do not need to think to move well. However, you must be present and you must be aware and you must be alert and responsive by sensation. And all your brain is going to compute all of that at an extremely fast uh, speed. And that's how you move well. That's why we have a brain. So there are those uh, little organisms, I believe the name is uh, sea squirt. They, they're floating um, and they have a tiny, tiny brain, like two neurons brain. Yeah. And they're floating in the ocean and then they find a, a place on a rock where they decide to stick and stay. And then they become from somehow an animal creature, they become vegetal the moment they do not need to move anymore they dissolve that brain because it's unnecessary they do not need that brain because they don't have the necessity for movement so that's the the original reason why we developed the brain was for us to be able to move in efficient and hopefully effective and safe ways um through complex environment so when you don't do it, back to the original point, when we don't do it, we may be occupied with very reasonable, uh, sensitive matters, uh, work responsibilities, everything. We have to manage a lot of things in our yeah. life. We all do. But the physical expression is extremely limited. And therefore, the very reason, the primal, original reason why the brain was evolutionarily built and developed is absent pretty much from our life. It's depressing because we do not have a stimulation 
that our brain needs yeah. to perform optimally. So natural adaptable movement makes you smarter because it, it maintains the activity of a brain in the way that it's originally supposed to, to do and be. Yeah. It's m- mental health keeps coming up for me here because, yes. you know, let's take the, um, I guess, a stereotypical view of someone who might be struggling with depression. Okay. They're not typically going to be standing upright with an open chest mm-hmm. and an open demeanor. They're actually going to be a lot of the time sort of hunched over, over chest inwards a little bit, yeah. you know, rounded back yeah. because our posture says so much about our state of mind and our inner yeah. world. Mm-hmm. And yes, there's a lot of research saying that walking or running or physical activity per se is possibly one of the best antidepressants that exists. It is. It is for sure. Yeah. But I don't think it's just because of, oh, it's the movement and your heart rate going up. Of, of course, movement is three-dimensional, right? So trying to just reduce it down to what is it in movement? It's everything but walking and running. These are natural human movements that we have done for thousands of years. And if you are not doing them, your brain is not being fully stimulated and expressed. 100%. So it's no surprise that certain parts of that brain are working suboptimally and we feel depressed and we feel anxious. Yes, there are other inputs as well, but movement is that fundamental. It's that fundamental. Yes. And the irony is when you are feeling depressed, you don't have the motivation to move. Yes. That's the irony. Yes. And you're like, oh, well, uh, I need to be fit first so that I can move. (laughs) No, you need to move first and then you'll become fit. But yes, completely on point uh, regarding the mental health, because it's true, again, um, there's a lot of conditioning of the way we perceive, you know, the world, ourselves, and what we're supposed to do and for what reasons, you know, get a bit in the sun for vitamin D, get uh, get movement, do some movement for endorphins or whatever it is, you know, for your heart, for your blood pressure, etc. There's much more than that. (laughs) You stimulate your brain. Um, what it does to the brain um, and not just releasing particular hormones and neurotransmitters, it's, uh, it's going to affect the structure of your brain. And then and, and that's science that explains that. Um, if you don't read about science, you may not know about that. But if you simply observe what happens when you move and also depending on the way you move, how you move, and what context, the whole context. And we typically don't look at the whole context. Exercising in a gym, exercising in the forest, in the woods, it's not the same animal. It's the same body, but it's not going to be the same movement. It's not obviously not at all the same context. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the outcome physically, we're talking about, hey, if I do that kind of movement, my body changes that way. If I do that kind of movement, my body changes that way. It's, di- it's different adaptation. Same will happen to your psyche, to, to, your, to your mindset, to how you feel, to your energy levels, to, yeah. because a lot of adaptations. So it depends on what context you expose yourself to. It's very important to have a, I would say, selectivity and maybe mm-hmm. wisdom about that. 
because you may not realize that you do you go inside a gym and the air is stale and it's maybe polluted there's a lot of indoors pollution that people don't even yeah. are not even aware of so you're not breathing fresh air okay you're not looking at a horizon you're looking at walls and then you're looking at yourself and then you're not looking at trees you're not looking at the sky, you're not looking at the ground and all the variety of it. You're mm. not, the, you know, all that stimulation um, through olfaction, for all your senses, the differences of light, the differences of terrain, all of that is going to stimulate stimulate you, not just physically, mm. mentally, emotionally, every part of you in ways that are natural, in ways that are universal in ways that are original in ways that are very healthy i could talk about natural movement with you <laughs> for hours but one of the reasons i invited you onto the show was because you have this new course breath hold work meditation mm -hmm. which has been transformative for me wow i have done many courses i've done a lot of studying around breathwork. I've done many breathwork courses. Your course was like nothing else I'd ever done. And the insights I gained from it were like nothing else as well. And fantastic. the reason I invite you on the show is because I, I, I want to talk about this course. Yeah. I think it's brilliant. I think more people should do it. I think there's so much learning to have, but we need to sort of go step by step so that people understand what it is. Yes. So from my perspective, mm. I did a four week online course with you twice a week, right? Yes. And on the outside, it's about breath holds. Yes. But I don't really think it is about breath holds, even though breath holds is the mechanism, mm -hmm. it's what you experience. I think it's about so much more than that, but the breath hold is the practice to get you to learn all kinds of insights about yourself. But top line was that on day one, when you on the course asked everyone to take an in-breath and then to see how long they could hold it for, yes, I could do one minute. Four weeks later, and I didn't do that much practice, it was something like four minutes, 20, four minutes, 30, something like that. So over four times the breath hold time in four weeks. I remember. Which was incredible mm -hmm. and still is incredible. And I know all the students who who go through your course, double, triple, quadruple, yes. and more their, their breath hold time in just four weeks, yes. right? Yes. So, Let's sort of unpick what's going on here. Now, long-term listeners to this podcast, everyone would have heard me talk about nasal breathing before. I've yes. had James Nestron, Patrick McEwen. Wonderful. Uh, Brian McKenzie. You know, we, we've spoken about nasal breathing. Great messengers. Why it's so important. Of course, let's recap some of that if you want. But what is it about your course that's unique? It's a meditation. So the same way I was saying, regardless of um, the physical program, the physical discipline that you choose, ultimately what you're seeking is a, an experience of yourself. So when we hold our breath, 
it's not just about, okay, how long can you hold your breath? It's what's happening to you when you do. What's the experience that you're having in your mind? What happens to your mind? And what do you make to happen to your mind? And so it's knowing oneself. Typically in meditation, you will be obviously in a quite, quite place, quite time, maybe alone, maybe with other people. You may close your eyes or keep your eyes open. It's uh, stress-free and you will use slow breathing as a way to quiet your mind, to calm down or down-regulate your nervous system, to access more clarity, to pace your mind, clear up your mind, observe your mind. That's what meditation is about. Mm. Know thyself. You know? When you do that holding your breath and everyone knows universally what's the response to not breathing, it's alarming. That's the least mm. we can say. And if you keep holding your breath, it's more than alarming. It's unsettling. It becomes uncomfortable and pleasant. And then you want to breathe really, really quickly. So you are under stress. You create a stress. How can you possibly meditate when you trigger that kind of stress? Well, precisely. <laughs> precisely. So not only there is a stress that normally when you meditate, you avoid stress. Here you trigger one. You trigger a stress. It's self-induced. You do that to yourself. It's not external. You just by simply pausing the breath, but not just for a few seconds. You have to prolong that a little more. You create that stress and then you need to manage your response to it. Mm. And not only the fact that you are not breathing is triggering that stress, but you then cannot use breathing to downregulate. You cannot use breathing to soothe yourself and to tranquilize your mind. Mm. So how do you tranquilize your mind? Yeah. How do you meditate? How can you find uh, centeredness, clarity, patience, all of those beautiful qualities of, of, of the mind that is stable, mm -hmm. of the mind that is clear, of the mind that, that feels safe, right. which is the point. You make things a little more difficult, but actually it's an advantage. Yeah, it, it it really was absolutely incredible. I remember seeing the testimonials before I managed to sign up for mm. a course and I would see people were doubling their breath all the time, tripling. And I was thinking, mm -hmm. nah, not me. I'm, I'm going to struggle with that. Like I, I never felt like I could hold my breath for long. Okay. And I knew a lot of the physiology. I do. I, I understand the physiology of the breath very well. Uh, we've covered it on the show. You know, we've said many times before that the, or now I will reframe that having done your course, one of the drives to breathe is carbon dioxide rising yes. in our blood. Mm -hmm. Now, many breathwork practitioners will probably say that's the drive to breathe. 
but it's just part of the picture, which is what I'd learned on your course, which was that you cannot go in, well, actually it was in under four weeks from one minute to close to four and a half minutes if it was just physiology. My physiology will not adapt that quickly, or let's put it another way, highly unlikely to adapt that quickly. And for anyone who's not following, what I mean by that is simply me being able to tolerate higher and higher levels of carbon dioxide before I feel I have to breathe, that adaptation wouldn't happen that quickly. No, and actually, by the way, it can happen even quicker because that was the online uh, program, online course that you took, and it was designed to be two sessions per week over four weeks, all right? Um, I've done retreats, five days, same results within four days already. And then on the five days, uh, on the fifth day, then attempting a new and a maximum breath hold, double, triple. Uh, so yeah. uh, physiological adaptations in five days, no there's, yeah. no, there's no way they take place that fast. And this is the uniqueness and the magic in the course, which is why for me it's been so transformative and why I... I've not come across anything like it anywhere and everything that I've done and I've studied and written about is because what happens is, first of all, it's very, very different from Wim Hof. And I think it's important to make that clear because I was at an event in LA years ago and Wim Hof was speaking. And he said to this room that, you know, in within... 20 minutes, I'm going to have you all holding your breath for three minutes. Yeah. I didn't believe it was going to happen, but it did. But that was all done because of hyperventilation. Yes. So I, th- I think a lot of people don't fully understand that when you do uh, the, the hyperventilation method, you do all these big in-breaths and out-breaths, you're blowing off a lot of carbon dioxide. Yes. So as I, we, I was explaining to my kids last night when you were with yes. us over dinner, it's like... If carbon dioxide is one of the, uh, rising is one of the drives to breathe and you artificially lower carbon dioxide by breathing out in a fast fashion, like you do with his technique, well, it's relatively easy then to hold your breath for longer than you would because you've you've lowered your carbon dioxide. So you're getting back to baseline and then rising. Yes. Whereas your method has none of that hyperventilation. No. So it's a lot calmer. Yes. It's a lot quieter. And then I would say, certainly for me, the insights that I've gleaned are much, much greater. Like, and and I've spoken to other people who've done the course and they all say the same thing because I understand hyperventilation has its role for some people. Some people seem to get benefits, okay? I, I'm not trying to underplay that in any way. And I think it's really key to explain that your method is very different from that. You're not tricking the system first. Yes. You're totally calm. So the urge to breathe comes quickly. Sometimes I've been at 30 seconds, 40 seconds again, oh, I need to breathe. But then by controlling my mind using the method you taught me, I can do another two minutes. Yes. I'm so passionate about it because what I learned here, one is, and why I think this crossover to every aspect of my life 
And I think why people will get lower stress, lower anxiety, they'll be getting triggered less by the world around them is because in that moment where your body is screaming for you to take a breath, you have taught me that even then, if you can quieten your mind and your thoughts and quieten your body and your whole being, yes. you can keep going. You again. Sometimes another minute, sometimes two more minutes. You think, how has that just happened? I, I had to breathe, but I didn't. Yes. So I think the key thing for me is that ultimately you learn to master your mind in a very extreme situation, which means when I go back into everyday life, yes, oh, no problem. Less stressful. And then you can yeah. see the reactivity around you. Yes. So that's that's my insights. Uh, what would you say to that? Oh, uh, there are so many ways I could uh, comment on uh, what you what you explained. Um, holding one's one's breath. Why? Uh, why would you do that? Um, so meditation, meditation, to take a moment to observe the experience that you are having. It's also the experience that you are in that moment. And when you do that while under stress, it's a physiological stress. So it becomes neurological, it's neurophysiological stress. It brings up a lot. It brings up the truth about who you are in the moment, how you experience yourself in the moment, how you respond to that stress in the moment. It gives you the opportunity to choose what that experience is going to be. Not just like, well, of course it's unpleasant, therefore I'm all negative, I'm agitated, I'm emotional about it. That's the universal response for everyone. It was mine. Until you learn to master your inner experience, which is in that context of, I'm on my own. There's no interaction with the world. I can't blame, I can't say, well, I'm upset, I'm a negative because that happened to me, that person said that to me, I have that problem now, and this is, no. It's you and you. So talking about hyperventilation, um, can you improve the length, the duration of your breath hold by hyperventilation, like breathing really hard before. Yes, it's like you said, it's uh, somehow tricking your physiology. It's a very old trick uh, that uh, um, people do spearfishing, free diving, they all know it. And they also stay away from it because when you do that before diving, before mm. swimming underwater, you can pass out. The reason is, just like you said, it's going to artificially lower your levels of CO2 in your body. And it's the accumulation of CO2 that's going to trigger your need to breathe. So if you lower those levels of CO2 and then you stop ventilating, stop breathing, your metabolic activity remains exactly the same. So you keep using oxygen, you keep creating CO2 at the same rate, except it's not exhaled. Therefore, the levels go up. It's picked up by your respiratory centers, your chemoreceptors. 
and it's telling your your brain and your autonomic nervous system now breathe 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 you can't you need to regulate this you need to regulate this so uh, you flush out a, a big big bunch of that co2 beforehand and then magically wow that's amazing what a, a secret oh mm. that's uh, uh, magical i can hold my breath longer except that there's a moment where the accumulation of co2 is still going to happen you're still at some point going to become very uncomfortable with it. And then you do not have that advantage anymore. Mm. And then what do you do? How do you keep, how do you tolerate? How do you keep going? And you can't just tell yourself, well, I just need to relax. Everything is going to be all right. That's not the way it works. Yeah. And then you start to, it just, you start to be overwhelmed. So you haven't really learned to hold your breath. It's, it would be the equivalent. I'm going to use an image. Imagine you're going to say, hey, I'm going to train for cold exposure. So you're going to dive or you're going to soak in really cold water, freezing water for, you know, resiliency, physiological adaptations. Except you put an eight millimeters wetsuit before, beforehand. <laughs> and you're like, wow, it's amazing. I can stay 30 minutes, no problem. <laughs> and the water. And then, but at some point, you're going to really freeze your arse anyway. It's going to catch up with you. The cold is still going to get in and you're going to start to... F and and then that's when the real work yeah. starts anyways. So how about you just take off the wetsuit? How about you just remove the hyperventilation and you just... Get to that point. Train the mind. Train the mind to master itself, to tranquilize by its own supply, not just by manipulating the physiology. And this is why I said before, it's not about the breath hold, really. It's certainly not about the breath hold time. Yes. Because I think this relates to a lot of the things we've been talking about throughout this conversation, right? It's about outcome versus process, or how do you stay yes. present in the moment? Completely. You cannot be anything but present in a breath hold. 100%. If you've got a busy mind, if you've got a lot of stuff going on, hey, that's all great, but hold your breath and suddenly you're in the moment. Yes. Because it's that primal, the urge to breathe, yes. right? It's what we do day in, day out without even thinking about it. But I think this is a key point. Let's say you hyperventilate beforehand mm -hmm. and you get to three minutes or you get to three minutes with your method, two completely different versions of three minutes. But the point really isn't, how long did you do? Certainly not for me. The point is, at that moment, when you have that strong urge to breathe, whether you've preloaded with hyperventilation or not, all that's doing is delaying the time to when that moment comes. The yes. learning happens not by seeing three minutes on the clock. The learning happens from, oh, now I'm uncomfortable. What do I do? Yes. Do I shy away? I go, oh, I'm, I'm out. Yes. And you know what? Completely. A few days ago, I did that. I wasn't feeling it. I just, I couldn't go there. And that's okay. I don't consider that failure. I consider that an education for me to go, oh, interesting. Why was it today you wouldn't go there, right? But yes. the learning is is in that um, uncomfortable place. That's where the learning is. That's where you learn, oh, I still can control my mind here. I can quieten down my mind. 
it's, yes. it's so yes. profound. Because comfort is actually the goal. Mm. But you're going to understand the path to comfort by going through that discomfort. There's no way around it. Master of a discomfort, you'll master of a comfort. There's no way around it. So you may delay the discomfort, but there's a point where you have to face that discomfort. And I like to use a kind of alchemical metaphor. It's like the, the lead in you, and you have to turn it in gold, and nobody else can do it. It's you have to alter your mind, but you who is you, the mind that you are, has to be intentional about the response it's going to create. So it's beyond CO2 tolerance. It's tolerance. It's learning to handle a perception of threat because that's what it is. We all know. Why do we need to breathe? Well, because otherwise we die. So quickly after we stop ventilation, that's the biomechanical part of breathing, ventilation. Breathe in, I breathe out, gas exchange, oxygen in, CO2 out, all good. Now pause this. And then there's right away, we sense internally, this needs to be regulated. It's not normal. It's unfamiliar. It's uncomfortable. And if we keep, do, if we keep doing that, it's not going to, to go very well. We feel threatened inside. That is the real urge to breathe CO2 being only one of the cues that trigger that threat. What's the response to the perception that the threat is present, that it is conscious or unconscious? What is a threat? Is the perception that there is a detrimental outcome to a situation, to a context, that if we don't regulate that or if we don't, Make it, create a distance from it, if we don't make it stop, it's going to be a detriment to us. Mm -hmm. And as long as that threat is around us or present and we feel it, there's no way we can be at ease. There's no way we can relax. We're on alert and we need to regulate. Why? Because we're alive. We're, all of us are a, a unit of life, a biological unit, and we're alive. And we want to stay alive. Yeah. So now there's a threat that's happening internally. It's not a lion. It's not uh, something. It's, it's right inside. It's a biochemical change inside of the body. We want to regulate that. We are not going to find our comfort and our sense of safety until we have regulated that. How do we regulate that? We need to breathe again, simplest route. Or... another route yeah it's not a lion it's not a predator that really speaks to the stresses that many of us face these days we're yeah. not out hunter gatherers anymore out in tribes most of us at least it's not a predator yeah. it's our perception of the world around us that's creating stress it's yes our perception of our workload, our email inbox, is how we view the world, it's how we approach conflict, it's how we deal with people queue jumping or yes. cutting us up in the road, whatever it might be, we generate a lot of internal stress. And yes. there's a real freedom when you realize that 
actually a lot of that is self-generated. Mm-hmm. Yes, the situation, the external situation is happening, but most of the time, if not all of the time, my response to it will determine what happens in my body. So what's incredible about the breath hold work meditation is that it is self-generated internal stress. You, you are creating internal stress for yourself. That's a guarantee yes. by holding your breath. Guaranteed. That, that's the point. Quick and effective. But then by learning how to manage it and dissolve it and dilute it, yes, you learn that actually I don't have to be stressed here. You said this can be enjoyable. Some of the deepest yes. and most enjoyable meditations I have ever done are with your breath hold work practice. Mm-hmm. Because like this morning before, you know, we did, you know, what did I do? Five, three minute session, three minute breath holds with you. It yes. was wonderful. And after I'd warmed up, it was a feeling of bliss. Mm-hmm. Like in the middle of the breath hold, not at the end, in the middle of the breath holds, I can remember just feeling bliss. My body felt good. My mind felt good. I felt a real still. I felt a real connection to the world around me. It was, it's such a beautiful place. It is. And I think everyone would like to live in that place or at least experience that place. Yes. And some people will say they can get there through meditation. Yes, completely. It's interesting. You call it breath hold work meditation. Yeah. Most people, Erwin, I don't think would put the concept of holding one's breath and meditation together. I do. Yes. Precisely because you create that stress, which by the way, you create that stress and you are in charge of, you know, you are free to make it what you want, what you need to experience. It's not like a breath hold has to be a maximum breath hold all the time. In fact, most of the time, it's not even that. A breath hold practice, breath hold work practice is very gentle, very progressive. It has to be enjoyable. It has to have a measure of stress so that you have to overcome, you have to practice the very uh, response that you that you choose. It's like there's an antidote mm. for everything. Of course, you're going to become impatient. Well, perfect opportunity to practice patience. Patience. Of course, you're going to doubt that you can. Well, perfect opportunity that you create to practice self-confidence. Of mm. course, all kind of uh, potential negative thoughts are going to arise. Well, perfect opportunity to clarify your mind to make it to feel positive and confident and patient, etc., etc., etc. So it's a practice of the mind. The mind practices itself. It does not just observe itself. Mm-hmm. It gets to practice, practice itself. So that, um, that bliss that you've experienced, that's really where the goal is. That's the, mm-hmm. the, it, and it's not always like that. Yeah. But when you do find that place, 
it is really beautiful. That is really what we expect from the concept of meditation. A place where we become free of concern. Mm. Time is suspended, timeless. There's no worry. Yeah. To not be worried, to not be concerned. How priceless is this? And what is it? What is a worry? What is a concern? What is an apprehension? What is it that we're always running our mind like really fast and about so many things and we have to organize mm. so much and anticipate so much in our minds and be so busy in our minds? It's because we need to regulate our whole world, our whole life. We have responsibilities, we have duties, mm. we have concerns, we have problems. We all do. But we're doing that all day. And it looks like there's no switch off. So we create a moment where we turn our intention inwardly. That's the idea be mm. behind any form of meditation. And there are plenty of forms of meditation. And they all have their own benefits. We do not pay attention to the world around us anymore. It's an interaction with self. We gift ourselves, ourselves with that moment to begin with. Mm. And then we start observing. Now, observing in the breathful work meditation, the mind observing itself is just like in any other meditation. That's the fundamental. But that's not enough. Why? Because the response to the perception of threat is inherently by design, by default, it's all negative. It's panicky, it's uh, emotional, it's agitated physically, emotionally, and mentally. In everyone, and rather quickly, typically. So, beyond the observation, it's easy to quickly observe, okay, this is what's happening to my mind. Now, what do I want to what do I want my mind to experience? That is the, the question. Mm -hmm. And that is then the intention and the choice is to establish despite all the physiological triggers that trigger our neurology to have that emotional response that turn into negative thinking, agitated thinking, agitated body. It's to intentionally, deliberately down regulate all of that, tranquilize all of that, which means to find a sense of safety mm. to reverse engineer that process, to find a sense of safety because when we feel safe, because we trust the experience, yeah. then we can relax. And that's when you are in that space within that you experience that. Yeah. This Safety, trust. Trust. This is what life is about, really, you know. Yes. That's what the nervous system is about. This is where many of the modern illnesses lie, is when our nervous system is out of sync, when it doesn't feel safe, when we feel under threat. And as you say, we need to regulate. We will regulate in some way. We will take sugar, caffeine, booze. Coping mechanisms. Coping mechanisms, whatever it might be. All it's trying to do is regulate your nervous system. Yes, because upregulation 
that's not a skill, except sometimes you're tired and you want to be alive. You're in a social yeah. environment. You're like, I got to be present. I got to be funny or something or interesting. I got to be there. It can be just like that. Okay, you want to upregulate yourself. But in most cases, being agitated, starting with the mind, it's mostly the mind most of the time. It's yeah. in the mind. Even when the person looks like they are composed and tranquil, you have no idea what's running in their mind. And that can be a lot. And that can be overwhelming for a lot of people. And they are like, where is the switch off? Where is the switch off? So that agitation of the mind, that is not a skill because everybody somehow has it. There's also a lot of social, cultural pressure that pushes us to always be like that. Mm. To be able to find tranquility and not just to find it. Like, where is it? Where is it? Just to establish it. To yeah. make it happen. Now, that is the skill. That tranquilization, that downregulation, that is a skill. It's, that it's, needs to be practiced. It's arguably the most important skill in the 21st century that any of us need. Arguably, anyone who lives in civilized cu culture, I even hate that word civilized culture. It's, it's in some ways derogatory to people who live more natural ways that actually yes. are more in sync with our biology, right? But let's yes. say... Yes, I see. Do you know what I mean? But, Completely. But, but these, let's say these modern, developed, yes. um, urban type lives that many of us lead, yeah. I think you can make a pretty good case that mastering the skill of down-regulation is one of the most important skills to learn. And we can do that in a whole host of different ways. Having been a student on your course and experienced the benefits for myself, I want other people to experience it because I think there's something really powerful. If you can down-regulate when your body is screaming for you to breathe mm -hmm. and get in your oxygen, I think you can down-regulate anywhere. Yes, exactly. In that primal moment where your body thinks something really bad is going to happen, I need to breathe. Yes. And th that's what I think, if I was to summarize what I think the gold in that course is, there's, there's many bits of gold, but for me, it's that, that knowledge that if I can control my mind there, <laughs> I can control it anywhere. If the mind that you are can control itself, like manage... Yeah intentionally fashion the experience that he wants to be in that moment, then yeah, it, that can apply anywhere. And what I've also found is that when I meditate, when I'm not doing the breath hold work meditation, because I also enjoy non-breath hold related meditations, yes. I have found that since I did your course, I'm able to access deeper meditative states much quicker yeah. because it's all on a continuum, right? It is. It's not separate yes. skill sets. It's, yes. it's, if you can do it at that extreme end, completely, you can quite easily do yes. it in a non-extreme end. Absolutely. And by the way, in breathful work, there's breath work, breath work, breathful work. I teach both. Yeah. It's, and by the way, you remember in the course, we only start to more substantially hold our breath in the second uh, week, not even like the the first week, the first first two sessions were mostly uh, explaining breathing, the physiology of breathing. Uh, you know, some uh, very um, it was nasal breathing. It was yes. slowing the breath down. Yes. It was really gentle. Yes, 
And, and I think this is something that is worth making clear, is that this is not a method, a technique, a course to be macho that, hey, you know, I can hold my breath for four. I could do four no. and a half. I could do three. You're kind of missing the point. I get that's the way in for many people. It means, wow. It's the means to an end. You prepare your conscious mind. You prepare your, you work with your limbic brain. You work with like deeper aspects of your cognition. You work with your nervous system. And then, whoa, all of a sudden you become somehow, I like to use that word, timeless. Yeah. Detached from time and patient and tranquil in trust. And that magic happens. For someone who's interested yeah. or, uh, and they're thinking about maybe doing your online course, right? Yeah. Yeah. But they want to give it a go first themselves, right? Yes. Is there a simple practice that anyone listening to this podcast can actually experiment with themselves? Yes, actually on the, on the breathholework.com, uh, on the breathholework website, we have a free initiation. Um, it's a video and that's, that's one exercise because... You know, there are a variety of exercises. There are diverse ways to hold your breath. Um, it can be on full lungs. It can be with, after an exhale, it can be um, pushed to a certain degree. It can be a short recovery. It can be longer recovery. It can be, you, hold, you know, there's, there are diverse ways, you know, to structure the time that you spend holding your breath. Uh, so that free initiation is one simple exercise, 10 minutes. And during these 10 minutes, um, you will breathe, uh, you will uh, breathe slowly, you know, hold your breath. It's, 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 I'll let people just go there and discover the, the exercise. It's great to do, by the way, before you go to bed. Uh, hard, a lot yeah. of people fall asleep, like they're like, it's incredible. I realized after doing that, that exercise, I fell asleep like a baby. I slept like a baby yeah. the whole night. What's interesting about that for me is that when I spoke to James Nestor and Patrick McEwen, one of the things that was coming up was how, and I know you talk about this as well, online on your course, that many of us are breathing too fast. Too fast. We take too many breaths. Mm -hmm. um, yes, we're breathing more through the mouth. You know, we should be breathing predominantly through the nose and we should be breathing uh, in a lot a lot slower than we do. And we did this on the course. But what I found that I know you found with most of your students is without trying to actively slow down our breathing, by doing the practice, yes. by doing the breath hold work, your breathing rate naturally comes down. Yes. So we're talking about our respiratory rate. It's, yeah. uh, we're talking about how many breath cycles we take per minute at rest. So um, there's a simple way to uh, calculate that. Uh, one breath cycle is one inhale, one exhale. You start a timer, um, you inhale, you exhale, one breath cycle. And without trying to change anything, we're trying to consciously change the way you naturally, spontaneously breathe, you count how many breath cycles you take in one minute. At the end of that course, with that breath holding practice, 
all the students notice, except those who already had a naturally low respiratory yeah. rate, but all those, and that could include young individuals fit that do, you know, they run, they're physically active and they had like 17 breath cycles per minute, 14, and then they're down to eight yeah, or less. What should you have? So James Nestor uh, talks about that. He does? And, uh, yes, he does. Uh, and he says it's like 5.5. I remember. All right. That would mean, you know, uh, five full breath cycles and then either you have an extra inhale, an extra yeah. exhale at the end of it. I think that's a good number, uh, but I would say any anywhere below 10 is going to be good because it also depends on when you measure it. Is it in the morning right yeah. after you wake up or is it at the end of the day? Depends on the state of your nervous system, on your metabolic rate. There are plenty of variables that can impact that. Mm. But, um, you know, you lack sleep, you're stressed out, yeah. heart rate goes up. Because when you're stressed, heart rate goes up. You breathe faster. Um, anywhere below 10, well, personally, um, uh, at the altitude where I live, um, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, in the U.S., it's uh, 2,000. 200 meters altitude, 7,000 plus feet elevation. In the morning, my uh, respiratory rate is around three. It can be five, around three. And that's uh, just relaxing, sitting like this and just yeah. breathing, breathing slowly. Yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, I've seen a lot. I do a lot. I explore a lot. I talk to a lot of people. I I I love trying new things, but I got to say it really is something quite unique, original and special. Um it's a very very good course that has taught me so much about myself. I think that's a key thing that I like to highlight for people is that you learn so much about yourself. You learn about when you don't want to go there. You learn that much, like doing what? Doing nothing. Doing nothing. Just, just hold lying your there. breath and just wait. Just wait. <laughs> and sometimes it's not very long and you feel a bit of discomfort. And then where do you go? Yes. You know, and the other thing I love about the daily practice element of it, and I think we should all have a daily practice of some sort, some whether it's sort. this or something else, like yes. doesn't matter to me, Like, but a daily practice, because what this daily practice does for me is that on one day, let's say if I'm holding my breath, no problem for let's say two and a half minutes, let's say it's feeling easy. And then the next morning, one and a half minutes feels really hard. Yes. I've done it enough times now to, to realize Oh, your mind is busy. You're completely. You're worried about this happening later, or your workload, or you have yes. a podcast guest arriving shortly, or you you start to learn how much your mental state affects your physiology. Yes, exactly. Which is incredible. Yes. If it was all CO2 tolerance, then why would you have yeah. a lower tolerance of that day and the next day you have a completely different CO2 tolerance? Yeah. So it's not just about that. It's about tolerance. And what's going to determine your tolerance? Well, is the state of your nervous system. Is it uh, feeling really relaxed on that day, free of concern? But then another day, things come up and then you, you have a, a night that's not that restorative and you're agitated and there's so much at the back of your mind, you have concerns. 
and concerns are what? It's if there's something I need to regulate in my life, otherwise I don't feel safe. That's what it is. It's that simple. It's that simple. It's so binary. But hence, sympathetic, parasympathetic, That's nervous it. system. That's, That's it in it. a nutshell. Either you agitate or you tranquilize. You calm down or arousal mode or relaxation mode. Why? What determines? Well, either uh, there's a threat or something to do. <laughs> including even something you enjoy to do. So you need to agitate yourself to whatever, go dance or go work out or go just work mm. or relaxation, downtime. So you feel safe that you can allow yourself to take that time yeah. down, free of concern, tranquilize, restore your energies. And that feels good and that's healing and that's very important. And you, it's a, Almost, I would say it's uh, it's self care and self love to take the time, ideally, sometime every day, just do that. Just put your hands on your on your chest and feel yourself. Feel how your body feels. Feels how inside of you, your emotional self, your mm -hmm. mental self. Give yourself some support. Give yourself some attention, and then maybe also give yourself some practice so you practice because you know we've had practice hey, I, I would love to be patient I would love to be to have a more quiet mind I would like would love to think less I would love to think more positively I would love to have less anxiety I would everybody does because it feels good it's goodness we feel golden when we feel that way but if we wait for the world, for our circumstances to be perfect around us. It's never going to happen. There always will be some problems to take care of, some concerns to be had. So there's a point where we have to decide that, hey, you know what? I'm closing the doors, I'm closing the windows. I'm one with, with myself and I'm going to just give myself some attention because I need to regulate not just the outside world, not just to clean things and to organize things. and Just I need to reorganize inside. I need to clear it up. Yeah. I need to balance it out. I need to pacify it. It's practice. It's practice. And then it becomes second nature. If you practice yeah. with enough consistency, it becomes not just something you do, it becomes, it becomes who you are. It becomes some real... Structural changes happen neurologically in your brain, in your nervous system. And when we talk about the nervous systems and emotions, it's completely physical, isn't it? Yeah. And so it goes through the body. You get to know yourself so well with this practice. And just completing the circle from the start of this conversation the inner confidence you have yeah. in yourself on the other side of this, money can't buy that. No. No. You can't read that in a textbook or in a blog or in an article. You can read about, this is why breathwork is good for me. This is why meditation is good for me. But you do the practice, you go to that slight zone of discomfort, you yes. learn how to 
calm everything and yes. come out the other side and realize, wow, my mind is ultimately dictating most, if not all of how I feel. And I actually have more power over that mind than I previously thought. Yes. That's priceless. Yes. You recondition yourself. You're shaping that it's called the inner self, what you're going to experience, because that's what we are in the end. We are in charge of intentionally impacting mm. that experience that we are. That's the, the, the meta skill, that's the supreme skill. Otherwise, we are, uh, you know, subject to all kind of influences and we have little power over... Again, the experience that we're having, that's the experience we yeah. choose to be. You could say it's philosophical, it's psychological, that's also spiritual, in fact. It's all of that. And in the end, it's all simple. If you ask me, what's the secret to uh, holding your breath a long time? Is there a breathing technique? Is there like a mind technique? What is the mind technique? I want to tell you what the mind technique is. And it's trust. Make us trust. Will give you all the relaxation, the patience that you want. If you trust, you can relax. When you trust, some people call it faith. When you trust, that's the supreme feeling. That's where the peace comes from. That's where the patience comes from. That's where the clarity comes from. And that trust, again, When you go through the world, there are plenty of things that are going to unsettle you, are going to startle you, are going to uh, make you alert and maybe anxious and everything. When you are within, it's an interaction with yourself. Anything that happens, anything that you will experience is on you. Any thought, any visual that comes to you, any subject you think about, any emotion, any feeling, they don't come out of the blue, they come from you. You as a nervous system, not just having a nervous system, you as a nervous system generate that. You as a mind, you as a brain, you as a soul generate that. Why? Well, you're telling yourself a story, you're interpreting the world, you're interpreting yourself, you're making sense of that experience that you are. Now, if you're going to experience that trust, it's because you establish it. You want it. You desire that experience. You invite it. You establish it. And you delve in it as in an inner space. And then you dwell in it. And then you magnify it. And that requires impeccable intention and prolonged, also impeccable attention. And it's very pure that way. And it's either that or like, oh my God, there's no way I can do this. I have to wait longer. I don't feel good. It's, oh, okay, well, which way? <laughs> what experience of yourself do you want to be? Yeah, it's that simple. Choice. <laughs> it's and it's on you.
yeah, it's 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 on you. I think that's where the difficulty comes, but that's also where the gold comes. Yes. We can confront the limitations inside our mind. We can sit next to them. Turn that lead into gold. And who wouldn't want that? Ewan, it's been such a joy. Um, Likewise. Talking to you on the show. It's been great hanging out with you. You're someone I've... Uh, been watching from afar for many years. I know you've inspired previous guests on the show, Tony Riddle, The Foot Collective. Great work, great messengers. And you've you've done a great job at bringing the message of natural movement to so many people and inspiring many others to keep uh, sharing that message, which is wonderful. And I really feel now, I don't know if I'd call it a reinvention or a iteration. Like I know you're still passionate about natural movement, but I feel that this fits very much alongside it, but is again something very fresh and exciting that people can engage with if they choose to. So I thank you for Thank that you, course. Ryan. Thank you. Well, you know, I, I, I'm a human being. I uh, Like all human beings that we are, we face uh, challenges in, in this life. Uh, we, we, we do our best to make the sense of this experience that we're going through and uh, we all need uh, tools and practices and you know there are ways to optimize that experience to 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 make it better that's what we want it's a good life good experience and so through natural movement uh, what i realized okay this is missing from society where's the freedom to just do the things that we all want to do when we're kids and and then uh, or even it was never just physical and that's why in my book I, I say, when I move naturally, move in the woods, when I move the way I'm, I'm designed to move, it's um, it's a physical exp- experience or expression of my spirit, and it's a spiritual experience of my body. And and then with that breathful work practice, it uh, becomes even more this inner journey, inner exploration, inner practice but it's still through the body because the Mm. body never goes away everything that we experience is through the body so um what i believe i've found through my experience through my quest through my personal research i i'm eager to share for others to benefit as well Well, that's what i'm teaching what i'm teaching well we appreciate that Owen. (laughs) that's coming on the show thank you thank you really hope you enjoyed that conversation as always do think about one thing that you can take away and start applying into your own life and if you are interested in giving Irwin's breath hold work meditation course a go don't forget he is offering my audience a 30% off discount to both his online course and his live program that is taking place in September 2023 All you need to do is go to breathholdwork.com. That's B-R-E-A-T-H-H-O-L-D-W-O-R-K.com and use the codes LIVEMORE30. Now, before you go, just wanted to let you know about Friday 5. It's my free weekly email containing five simple ideas to improve your health and happiness. In that email, I share exclusive insights that I do not share anywhere else, including health advice, how to manage your time better, 
interesting articles or videos that I've been consuming and quotes that have caused me to stop and reflect. And I have to say, in a world of endless emails, it really is delightful that many of you tell me it is one of the only weekly emails that you actively look forward to receiving. So if that sounds like something you would like to receive each and every Friday, you can sign up for free at drchatterjee.com forward slash Friday 5. Now, if you are new to my podcast, you may be interested to know that I have written five books that have been bestsellers all over the world, covering all kinds of different topics, happiness, food, stress, sleep, behavior change and movement, weight loss, and so much more. So please do take a moment to check them out. They are all available as paperbacks, ebooks, and as audiobooks, which I am narrating. If you enjoyed today's episode, it is always appreciated if you can take a moment to share the podcast with your friends and family or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week. And please note that if you want to listen to this show without any adverts at all, that option is now available for a small monthly fee on Apple and on Android. All you have to do is click the link in the episode notes in your podcast app. And always remember, you are the architect of your own health. Making lifestyle changes always worth it. Because when you feel better, you live more. 